Peace, everyone. Welcome back to the Piper Carter podcast. Um, again, we're here with another segment of our very important Black August series, and we are very blessed and excited and inspired and looking forward to this incredible conversation with organizer, educator, Lumumba Bandele of the Malcolm X Grassroots Project. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I think before we get into the interview and things like that, can, let's just start up front with um, let's name the campaigns and how people can support. We'll start there. We'll probably name it one more time, but I want to just get Ooh, that sure. uh, there, up front. There, sure. There are a few campaigns. So most, most of the work that I'm currently doing now is around the support and release for U.S. held political prisoners. Um, and so we just won a major uh, victory with the release of Sundiata Coley, May 25th. The campaign now is in a fundraising stage after doing almost 50 years in prison. He has come home, of course, in need at 85 years old. Um, his daughter is now having to take care of an octogenarian. Um, and so we really need to raise as many re as much resources as possible so she does not have to bear that uh, on her own. And so sundiataacolifc.org is the website. We encourage people and invite people to go to that website to see how you can support, you can make donations directly, you can purchase merchandise, you can get these t-shirts that say, we bought Sundiata home. Um, you can get hats and pins. Um, and so that that is one. The other is uh, matuluShakur.com. We are inviting people to go there to be able to, to be directed to petitions where we are pressuring, um, urging, demanding that the Bureau of Pis Prisons release uh, Matulu Shakur who is terminally ill with cancer. His uh, appeal, his request for compassionate release has been denied twice. Um, even though he is, like I said, terminally ill, he will die. Um, they will not allow him to die at home with his family, with dignity. And so we are upping the ante and um, really pushing for more broader community support to support the call for him to be released immediately. Thank you. Thank you for that. And the links we'll make sure are in the description. And when we send this out, we'll, we will continue uh, on these campaigns um, with you. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, so talk a little bit about the org. Uh, before, before you, just a little bit about the org. So uh, folks who are not familiar. Sure. The Malcolm X Grassroots Movement is a national um, organization with chapters in New York, Philadelphia, D.C., Atlanta, Detroit, um, uh, Birmingham, Jackson, Mississippi, uh, and a few other cities I know I'm missing. Um, and we are an organization for and by uh, black New African people in the United States fighting for self-determination for black people, not only United States, but globally. Um, and so I am a member of the New York chapter and have been since 1995. Wow. That is 30, 25 years, 23 years. Yeah, it's 23 years. 23 yeah. years. Okay. Okay. That's a whole lifetime. 
No, it's actually a little bit more than that. My math is horrible. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. That's that's someone's whole lifetime. Yes. Yes. Um. And can you thank you for that? And can you let folks know um, how they can you know get involved? Sure. The uh, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement's website is www.mxgm.org. Mxgm.org. Malcolm X Grassroots Movement.org. Okay. And and, um, and and we are also on all of the platforms, Malcolm Express was moving on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you're invited and encouraged to follow us on those platforms. Thank you. And, um, and again, just before we get into you personally, I want to just get a definition from you because there's a word. It's, it's interesting. I, um, I'm involved in a lot of different ways in the movement and one way is uh, door knocking and also, uh, you know, just uh, sharing information. And I was at an event on Saturday and we were working, we are also working on a video that's going out um, about abolition. And mm -hmm. as, as I was going around the event, which is deeply embedded, deeply into the hood, um, many people, and even those who have, who had been formerly incarcerated, um, had never heard of the word abolition. Mm. And so um, mm. um, I'm wondering, so because that word may get thrown around a lot in this Absolutely. conversation. <laughs> so before we get into the conversation, could you please um, help us understand what does this mean? So abolition is, I think, in this current context, um, a way to frame um, a vision for a society, for our society that is removed from uh, context of, of, of punishment that is removed from carceral reactions to human dynamics that actually is the flip where we can envision a space where we highlight the best of who we are. We make decisions based on preventing things. We make decisions based on um, providing as much support for human need as possible. And we recognize the ability for uh, human transformation that people are not uh, the worst thing that they have ever done, that people do things in response to things. And we really are attempting to examine root causes of issues and begin to eliminate those things. And abolition, quite honestly, I think is in its perfect definition, uh, justice. Meaning that we are attempting to right wrongs. We are attempting in that process of righting wrong again, not punishing people, we are attempting to create dialogue to help create understanding, but most importantly, prevention. Like how do we prevent these things from happening? How do we make sure that we are creating uh, a society where we see each other as, as, as humans, we see each other as valuable beings that all have the ability and a mandate to contribute to this, this beautiful society? Um, and it may sound a little esoteric, right? Um, but essentially, it is somewhat that. It's us trying to be the best of who we are and eliminating a lot and unlearning a lot of which we have uh, inherited. Thank you. And um, can you give us an understanding of your path um, to this work and then right. an understanding of your work? Okay. Um, the easiest way to explain that... Um, I am a child of the Black Power Movement. My parents were founding members of an organization here in Brooklyn called The East. 
Um, and I encourage people, if you have um, the opportunity, there's a documentary that was recently done this year on this organization. The first documentary that's ever been done on our, on our organization is called uh, The Sun Rises in the East. Um, it's a really powerful uh, documentary. I encourage folks when it comes to your city to check it out. Um, but my parents were founding members of the organization. They met um, there, they married there, and I was born into this movement, hence my name, Lumumba. And I joke around and say, well, there's no pressure, right? My father gave me this name, you know, that's not like I got a lot to live up to, right? <laughs> so um, being born into the East, um, I didn't have a typical childhood. I don't know if people are familiar what what it's like to be a child of the movement. Um, and it, I guess it, 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 it can exist on, on a broad range of, of ways and experiences. Um, you know, for me, uh, our home was a, a part of the structure of Black organizing. Um, you know, my whole experience was a part of that. And so my childhood specifically was not one where I spent a lot of time going to the playgrounds, going to play dates, literally um, most of my time was at my parents' side doing movement work. So doing boycotts, demonstrations, doing cultural events at our space the e at, at the East, um, doing all of these things. And, you know, my home was, uh, you know, a place where people would meet constantly. It was very rare that we had the house to ourselves. There was always people here. You know, I tell the story of the time I woke up one day and Nina Simone was in our living room and stayed with us for like about a weekend and some some days, right? Wow. You know, we had, um, uh, uh, you know, South African exiles that came to live with us. We had so it was it really was a movement experience, um, yeah. and so that really set the trajectory for me for how I saw my life, how I saw what my my purpose uh, was and is in life. Um, and that has been the path ever since. So throughout my, my childhood, throughout my uh, time as a youth, uh, in high school in college, I've always been doing some kind of organizing in some capacity. Um, you know, I, and I had some very impactful experiences as a child. Um, at age nine, I had the opportunity to travel to Varadero, Cuba, um, where it was a, I forget what year it was, but it was an annual Cuban pioneer camp with young people from all over the world who came to Cuba to um, fellowship and share space. And these are people who came from liberation movements from El Salvador, from Nicaragua, from South Africa, from Namibia, from Libya, from Palestine, from Ireland, um, all of these places. And we were representing the United States. And it was a transformative experience to be able to see young people living their lives, but committed to transforming the material conditions of, of their of their lives and their communities. Um, but that was that's my childhood, you know. Up until now, I'm still doing this because it is again my purpose. Thank you. And then to your path to the organization. Ah, the path to the organization was um, through the work. Malcolm X Grassroots Movement was the first organization that I joined that I did not help to start. I didn't co-found. Um, and there were a number of reasons that I joined uh, MXGM. Primarily um, in 94, um, I was doing a uh, project um, 
when I was working at the Caribbean Cultural Center African Diaspora Institute, I was the director of programs then and was um, coordinating a, a African traditions and hip hop concert and conference. And we were um, pulling together young activists from all over and I re-engaged with who is now my wife, Monifa Bandelli. Um, and we began to uh, co um, work together to pull together so, to pull this together. And then we also began to work together to pull together um, this Asabache Youth um, Organizers Training Conference. That was, I think, the key uh, point where I became more um, connected to Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. MXGM was one of the key coordinators of this conference. And it's a funny story, and I'm going to share it because I think it's a real um, sort of anecdotal thing around organizational recruitment. Um, you know, I was going to visit different organizations trying to do a pitch to have them come and join the coordinating body of this conference and try to get them to be involved. And so I went to MXGM and, and you know, spoke, spoke to them at their meeting and I was asked to come back. And I came back the following week and they said, well, ask me to come back again. I came back another week and I was like, well, what's going on? And they said, well, since you keep been coming so long, why don't you just become a member? And they threw a <laughs> <laughs> a membership application in my lap, and I became a member. And I was really impressed with the organization, primarily because this is the mid-90s, and in the mid-90s, there are a lot of community organizations, a lot of radical Black organizations that are, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot. I mean, if you can think about what hip hop was during that time, right? It's, it's, it's brand Nubian, it's, it's X-Clan. It's, yeah. it's a reflection of like Black organizing, right? Yeah. Um, and this was one of the first organizations I saw that had very skilled, resourceful people who were not satisfied with just rhetoric. And mm. they actually were utilizing their skills and their expertise and their profession, in some cases, as a tool for the work. So MXGM mm. had at that time a number of amazing writers. I'm a name drop. Some of the writers that were in the organization and at that time that like really wowed me, Dream Hampton, Kieran Mayo, yeah. Raquel Cepeda, um, uh, uh, a few others I'm, I'm missing, but these are all like significant, like, you know, journalists, right? Who, who have transformed a lot around, not just hip hop journalism, but, you know, black experience in, 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 in larger contexts. Yeah, they were utilizing their professions to talk about political prisons, to talk about, um, theories of black womanism, to talk about deconstructed patriarchy, to talk about black self-determination, to talk about um, police violence. And for me, that was like enticing. It was like, yes, finally, some people that get it. And so I joined yeah. and I've been mm. with the organization since. Thank you. So let's talk about the role of culture in the movement and then organize the power, I would say. Um, I would say in my experiences, whether it's that same community in New York City, um, you know, with hip hop or again, uh, South America or um, just various, uh, I would say, spaces where culture is central to the movement or culture is culture is central um to the work of um you know maybe mobilizing people or igniting people or educating people inspiring people um bringing people in 
uh, I'm in some different spaces where we have mystica, right? Where we have a whole um, aspect where we, you know, um, do stories and pour libations or do dance or music or poetry before we start a meeting, right? Mm -hmm. And it's to ground us in this right. collective story of maybe our struggle or our triumph. Um, can you speak about how, for you, um, culture, you know, what, like, how has that helped you? Um, you know, how has that moved you? How has that, you know, um, you know, given you wings, I should say, to, to, right. to do this work? Yeah. Right. I'm going to answer this in a, in, a, in a certain sort of twist, uh, with a twist, I guess, to your question in that um, I maybe want to sort of say our arts as expression more than culture, only because culture in its true definition is just as a reflection of who we are, how we eat, how we live, how we sing, how we dance, how we pray, how we exist, right? Our aesthetics. And I think we oftentimes just lump arts into that and sort of that takes over that, but culture is everything. So when I go out, walk outside my house and I speak and I speak with a certain linguistic style that reflects that I'm from central Brooklyn, that's culture, right? Um, but the arts is a little bit different. That arts is when you get creative with that language, with that linguistic style, and you put it to music or you put it to spoken word or whatever. Um, but arts in itself, as, as a part of our culture, has always been a part of our movement. Like there has never been a separation, ever, right? Even if we're talking about pre-colonial uh, uh, you know, uh, contact, you know, with, with the European, our artistic expression has always been a part of our claiming our humanity and also our uh, self-determination and liberation, a vision for our liberation. So it's always been a part of that. So this idea of like, you know, using hip hop, you know, as a way to talk about our movement as a way to talk about our struggle, as a way to talk about our organizing is not new, right? It may be new for that particular art form, but in terms of a form of, of engagement, a way of, of accessing people, it's not new at all. You know, Negro spirituals underscore that, right? All of these other kinds of experiences, the whole uh, Harlem Renaissance is that, right? You know, we can't have this conversation and not talk about like Claude McKay's uh, poems, If We Must Die, how that is a reflection of the anti-lynching movement, right? All of that, it's always been a part of our experience. And so what we're looking at contemporarily is this generation's manifestation of that, this generation's language and approach to that and relationship to that. And the next generation will have something different, right? But there will always be that connection because when we struggle, we don't ever struggle, we don't ever engage in movement separate from our art. It will always be a part of that. And thank you for that distinction or that nuance or that, mm -hmm. I guess, uh, breaking down of the relationship between the arts and culture, culture and how, it, yeah, thank you for that. I, I love that. Um, I'm, may I borrow that? I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah, yes. yeah. let, let, let me, let me just say, I got that from the teaching of Dr. Marta Moreno Vega. <laughs> so if you're going to borrow it, but that's where you got it from. Okay. Thank you. And thank you. You are an educator. So thank you. Yes. Um, citing sources. Thank you. Um, so let's understand about at this moment, because 
in, in the beginning, we spoke of, you know, a couple, just a couple of the many uh, existing um, campaigns. And can we speak a bit um, so that folks could understand? For me, when I'm speaking with a lot of different people who are not um, in movement or our culture, as you will, mm-hmm. uh, I will say that it, it 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 feels as though, or it the language that I hear is a very hopeless language. Yeah. A very um. Yeah. This thing is outside of me. There's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Uh, could you please speak to power? Um, and yeah. with that, I'm, I'm I'm even trying to understand. Do I want to? lump power and sovereignty together or do we need to have is that two different <laughs> no we i mean i think okay. power is good because i think power speaks directly to this 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 and i think if what i'm hearing you correctly say it's it speaks to this issue of apathy you know this this sense of hopelessness and i think a lot of that really is a reflection of our i don't say inability but inconsistency with telling our stories and again this goes back to our art Right. We have as as artists, and I consider myself an artist, I'm a DJ, like we have a responsibility to tell our stories, not only tell our stories of pain and suffering, but we absolutely have a mandate and a responsibility to tell our stories of victory. What happens is when we tell our stories of victory, people will begin to hear that we have won before. People will begin to hear that we have done the impossible before. And that helps break down this apathy because generation after generation, people will say, police have always been kicking my ass. Right. Police have always been harassing us, right? We always right. been poor. We always been getting a, 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 a horrible education. We always been getting horrible health care. What's to make this any different? What's, what are you going to offer me yeah. or for us that's going to make any of this change, right? Yeah, yeah. But when we tell our stories of victory, we find out that those narratives have been disrupted with victories, those narratives have been disrupted with pockets, with spaces where we actually have we have changed the needle. We have changed history in many cases, right? But if our folks don't know that, if our folks don't have an understanding as to the possibilities, yes, then that that apathy will will, will totally totally uh, just just eat up our, our community members. And as an organizer, apathy is one of our biggest opponents yeah not necessarily the oppressor right but apathy you know right. as, as an organizer you learn early on that your uh struggle is to win the hearts and minds of your people right right and what prohibits you from winning the hearts and minds of your people is that people don't see any possibility in what it is you're talking about people don't see any any uh, any possible uh way of transforming or changing that reality but when you begin to share history when you begin to share stories of, of victories, then it's like, oh, okay, we absolutely can shift some things. We don't have to stay in this space of victimization. We don't have to stay in this space of, of just being uh, uh, just totally, you know, just drowning in all this stuff. Um, that is empowering. Yeah. Telling our stories, particularly our stories of victories, is a mandate. It's a responsibility. It absolutely is a necessity. Thank you for that. Um, that's very much food and um, is very nutritious. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. That's powerful. Um, and with that, you talked about transformational tools. 
And I'm wondering, um, in addition to um, the the idea of culture, um, what are some of the practices, the transformational practices that um, that the we, the collective we can do, um, whether they are programs or whether they are other organizations or whether they are, um, you know, examples, models, um, you know, I, I want to share a little bit so that in this moment, um, you know, it goes from what could be perceived as theory to here's boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That's a, that's a good question. I appreciate that because I think oftentimes we believe that we actually need to go somewhere to figure out what we can utilize, how we can build up and train. One of the most effective um, tools, approaches rather, and, and, and frames that I have received as a child of, of, of an organizer and as an organizer myself is do what you can with what you have. Mm. Like we all have a certain um, set of, or one, if it's just one, skills, resources. Use what you have at your disposal for the betterment of community. If that's what your politics are. If you are a radical revolutionary, use what you have at your disposable, at disposal for revolution. Right? We all have things that we can contribute. And this is important because this also helps to deconstruct what people think is the image of an organizer. This is, you know, people think this is someone who has great oratory skills, someone who is, you know, educated in, 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 in institutions of higher learning, all of that. Absolutely not. Right. When we talk about some of the most effective organizers, we're talking about people coming out of the Fannie Lou Hamer tradition of organizing, right? Utilizing their particular skills, expertise for the betterment of the movement, right? Mm -hmm. We all have something. We all have something. There's something that you can do. And so I teach a community organizing class at, for, at City University of New York. Mm. And I share some anecdotal things so that people can understand how this actually can, can uh, be valuable. As an organizer, you know a number of things early on in the game. One, you know that if you're going to try to uh, pull people together to organize people, you got to be able to meet some of their needs. That means that you're typically talking to and attempting to organize and or support people mm -hmm. who are mm -hmm. impacted by a number of issues. So if you cannot help them uh, provide some kind of uh, 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 answers for some of their immediate needs, what does that mean? Food. Like if you're going to have a meeting, you better have food there, right? Child care. If you want to be able to meet with residents or tenants, have childcare, right? Transportation. You know, the majority of who we're trying to organize are poor people who have to do all they can just to make ends meet. And so we have to be able to facilitate the challenges that they meet in order for them to actually come and be a part of this process. And so cooks are extremely valuable in organizing. People who do childcare are extremely valuable in organizing. If you got a car or van, that's extremely valuable in organizing. And so that's important to know. So we 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 are clear that we all have different entry points that we can find a way to contribute in a meaningful way. 
not in a real performative or symbolic way, but in a very meaningful way. If you're a carpenter, there's a million things you can do. If you're a visual artist, there's a million things you can do. If you're a performing artist, there's a million things, you know? So not necessarily having to go recreate something, but starting with what you have, starting with what you have, what you have in your own mind, in your own heart, your abilities, starting there is the toolkit that we suggest that people utilize. Thank you for affirming us all. Um, and for mentioning um, Fannie Lou Hamer, I, I would consider myself of the Fannie Lou Hamer school. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And uh, her, you know, model is definitely um, one that, you know, uh, I, I would say has been the most useful tool um, that I've used. Um, and I want to take it back, mm -hmm. um, you know, because we're going to wrap, but I want to take it back to um, the conversation around um, detainment, um, incarceration, the carceral system, yeah. and, and, and abolition. And mm -hmm. I want to, um, so I'll say this. One, I want to have an um, understanding in this current context, uh, 20, you know, 22, about um, how that looks. And then also um, at the tail end, if you can give us uh, a reading, something to something read. To, something to read. Ah, okay, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Let me give you uh, something to read first because the way my mind works, I will forget after I answer your okay. question. Okay. Um, a book that I um, have been uh, giving, assigning to my students is Becoming an Abolitionist by Derricka Purnell. And I Thank think this you. is extremely valuable. Um, this, is, this is an extremely valuable text in that it is not something that is grounded in academia. It's not something that regurgitates um, a bunch of different theories. It is very much about a lived experience of someone who came from one particular set of experiences and framing and through life was able to shift and see mm. what needed to change, what needed to, to be evolved. And so it, the book starts with where most of us are. And I think that is believing this, this, this fallacy that for generations, all of us, um, for the most part, have been taught to believe is true. And that fallacy is that police keep us safe. Mm -hmm. Right? That is one of the biggest yeah. lies that right. we, we, we continue to perpetuate. Right. And right. so she, she starts with that in terms of how and why we um, just habitually call 911 for things that have no real, you know, function of 911. You know, like we could actually be able to solve a lot of stuff if we sort of uh, decoupled, you know, human needs from from law enforcement, from, you know, a, a very uh, a habitual uh, again, kind of reaction of, of trying to put this in someone else's hands. So mm -hmm. I would strongly recommend that. And I would say also just that, um, you know, we talked about the definition of abolitionist, of abolition rather. Mm -hmm. It's important to say, because I, I know and work with a lot of abolitionists. Okay. I don't identify myself as an abolitionist only because I'm still struggling through a lot of components of that. Okay. So I call myself an aspiring abolitionist. Like okay. At some, at some point, I'm gonna get there, right? Okay. Um, that is where I'm, I'm. I'm attempting to go, um, 
But it's important to know that with a lot of these theories that are being um, discussed with within the context of abolition, many of these are not new. Okay. Many of these are practices that our communities have been utilizing for generations. For example, um, you know, for the I, mean, I think ten years ago, there was a whole lot of discussion around restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Right. This whole idea. And it's, it's I mean, it's it's been so uh, intellectualized that it's like it's almost hard to recognize now because everybody sort of, you know, made it into something that they wanted to re- reshape it as. But, you know, when we look at the, the 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 principles and the concepts that are a part of restorative justice, you know, root cause, accountability, prevention, um, you know, community engagement and involvement, you know, a lot of that is stuff that our communities and not just black communities, but, you know, communities in in general have utilized. For example, back in the day, if you were playing outside and you broke Miss Jenkins' window, Mm -hmm. right? Typically, folks are going to get together. You're going to have to go and apologize to Miss Jenkins. You're going to have to figure out how to pay for her window or fix it somehow, but you have to uh, address and confront what your actions resulted in, right? And if you couldn't do that, you actually end up probably working to clean up Ms. Jenkins' yard for the next few weeks or whatever. But there is some very systemic ways that our communities have resolved conflict mm-hmm. without law enforcement, have resolved right. conflict in a way that is grounded in community. Right. It wasn't called restorative justice back then, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But it existed. It yeah. existed. And so I think it's important to know that the names are new. The names are very new um, to some degree, but the concepts are things that we have already. We have these models. We have um, stories if you talk to your grandparents about it. And primarily because of segregation, we had to come up with solutions that did not involve law enforcement. Yeah, we had to come up with solutions, and sometimes that meant other institutions had to step in and facilitate stuff. So the reverend had a larger responsibility to resolve conflict. The teachers had a larger responsibility to engage people and help resolve conflict. Right? All of those things, I think, are extremely valuable and absolutely necessary now. Thank you for breaking that down. And um, so I want to, you know, respect your time. But I, but just before you go, I do have one more question and it's a it's like the the piece that I'm always asked from my community members about how um, resolve may be a not the proper term but I'm going to use resolve just in this moment Um, when there are harms that um are outside of something that could be solved in a in a circle or in 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 that kind of way right like harms um that are um what some folks may uh call uh irreprehensible right mm-hmm. or or mm-hmm. or uh when mm-hmm. when there's a want for vengeance right, right. From whether that's right. family members or right. loved ones mm-hmm. so i want to understand from mm-hmm. your perspective how do you um, respond to that yeah and, I, and, and it may not be an answer, you know, or right, maybe there right, is. Right. Well, I think the first thing I do is acknowledge that what we know doesn't work is what we continue to do. Yeah. 
right? So we know, we hear stories every day. We look at the news of some of the most, um, what's the word, reprehensible acts that people have committed um, and continue to commit. And we know that the state has put in place things that they consider to be uh, things to help prevent that, right? Harsh, um, you know, tough laws, harsh sentences, um, and, and to a large, large extent, things like the death penalty, right? And we know that those things have never prevented these things from happening again. I think the 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 challenge around us imagining a new society, us imagining something different, is that oftentimes we believe that if somebody, somebody else has the answer. And that's, mm. not, that's not the case. What we are missing is the collective imagination to really put our minds, our resources into figuring out what some of these answers are. But I think because it's something new, we are stuck with what we know. And what we know, unfortunately, again, has been proven not to work. The police do not keep us safe. Right. Harsh laws, harsh sentences do not prevent people from doing reprehensible stuff. Right. It does not. Right. Texas has one of the highest rates of, of, of executions. Mm. You would think that if if that were that theory were true, you would not have murders. You would right. not have all of the acts that would result that in, in the sentences of, 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 of capital punishment. Right. People know. <laughs> right? That this, yeah. is, this is what happens, but that does not prevent it. So I think it's important to really just name what we know does not work, right? And then really begin to have an honest conversation about what some possibilities are. And that is where I think we're going to find a lot of the the uh, real valuable nuggets. Um, yeah. And I think that that is also where we're going to find so many ways that people can contribute who typically would think that they don't have anything to contribute, our neighbors, right? Yeah. Young children, you know, have a conversation with young children about what their vision understanding of justice is. Oh my God, that's a valuable conversation, yeah. right? Because many of them are, are, are young enough where their understanding of justice is not rooted in a carceral context, mm -hmm. right? You know, mm -hmm. and so I think that those kinds of, of, of uh, conversations are extremely important extremely valuable and we need to have some honest conversations about what we know does not work and that we are not that we have to challenge ourselves that we are not continuously upholding something because we cannot figure out another solution and essentially that's what we continue to do yeah the question is if not this then what yeah right and so that yeah. really is the entry right there if not this then what so unless we have an alternative we're going to continue to do what's wrong Right. That's not sound. That's not logical. <laughs> right. So essentially, we're just doing something until we can figure out something else, because our, in our own honesty, we know what exists, again, does not work. And thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you make me think that probably September we need to focus on healing justice. <laughs> Ooh, I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am going to respect your time and I appreciate all the time that you have given. I want to give you enough time to do what I you need it. to do to prepare yourself. Okay. And, um, and I appreciate, you know, um, I definitely would love for 
folks to um, send me questions and, you know, any follow-up um, and, you know, would definitely point you in the right direction. Before we go, could you please, uh, just again, for those who just hopped on, because we are live, a name again, the um, ways in which folks can support these existing campaigns. Absolutely. So um, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement website is www.mxgm.org. Again, we invite you to go to the website and see all that, that we're doing. The two campaigns that I want to uplift at the moment right now, the most dire need right now is for Dr. Matulu Shakur, who is uh, serving over three decades in prison right now and is terminally ill with cancer. Um, he will die. He will die within the next few months. Um, this is based on the own pure, the, the Bureau of Prisons assessment, um, but they yet continue to deny him compassionate release. They continue to deny him parole. He is not and has, has not been and had never was, quite honestly, a threat to society. Um, but yet he is still um, being caged up and still not allowed to go home and die in dignity in the arms of his family. And so we well, we, we invite you to go to matuluchakur.com, M-U-T-U-L-U-S-H-A-K-U-R.com, matuluchakur.com, to um, sign the petition and share it out far and wide um, and join the call for uh, his, his, his immediate release. The other campaign is uh, Sundiata Akoli, and this is a campaign that I, you know, in our conversation just now of, of talking about victories, you know, this is a victory. You know, Sundiata spent close to 50 years in prison. He was told that he would never see the light of day, but May 25th, he walked out of prison. He walked out of prison May 25th after close to 50 years. And so um, he's 85 years old uh, and he is in need of support. Um, he's coming he is home with his family and his family now is forced to, uh, his children now forced to take care of their children and now their father, um, who is an octogenarian, who is ill with a significant amount of um, health, health challenges. And so we're asking for community to help pitch in so that the family can um, not bear the burden of all of this by themselves. And so Sundiata Akoli, FC.org, S-U-N-D-I-A-T-A. A C O L I F C dot org, Sundiata Akoli FC dot org to make a donation and to support um, our freedom fighter who came home this past May. I want to thank you. I want to thank you again for your time and for um, this very brief teaching, education, uh, survey, if you will, of, um, you know, one of the, I would consider. Uh, probably the most important issue uh, of our time. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you um, to your wife for the work that you're both doing and to everyone at the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement and everyone in the movement, um, just sending lots of love and appreciation to everyone that has been continuing with these um, campaigns and um, sending um, so much love to um, the families of everyone yes, that's yes. Um, impacted uh, yes. by this incredible issue. So, and then uh, we just want to ask folks to uh, please keep listening to Piper Carter podcast on the Detroit is different podcast network. You can find us on pipercarterpodcast.com or Detroit is different.net. And again, we are on all of your social platforms. Be well, peace.
Peace. Thank you.